Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. I am your co-host, Mr. Nathaniel Paul Thurston. Across from me is the other co-host, Mr. Charles Chuck Thompson. How's it going today, Chuck? Well, co-hosting. We are co-hosting, for sure. Charlie, how's your day going, man? Pretty good. Yeah. Just received some wonderful news. Yeah, it's going really good. A little bit ago. Really good day. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Charlie's having a great day. Mm -hmm. I'm actually having a great day. So welcome to the show, everyone. This is Good Morning Liberty. We talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning every single day of the week when we want to. So if you are so inclined, go smash the follow, the subscribe, leave a comment, a rating, and review, all the stuff. Or if you're so declined, do the same thing. Either way, do those things and go to joingml.com so you can hang out live with us during the show. Hey, before we get going on all the stuff I was telling everyone beforehand, there's a correction from yesterday. I wanted to thank Steve, I'm just gonna say Steve, for reaching out via email. First off, I'd like to say that he said yesterday's story about the Babcock Ranch in Florida was spectacular, one of the greatest stories that there's ever been. The finest journalism the on best both sides. Ju- but I missed one thing. Ooh, okay. Yeah, and so I was gonna I just, like how we started with the positivity. Yeah. I could have embellished a little bit. Are... I'm paraphrasing what he said. Okay. Just paraphrasing. But anyway, we mentioned Florida Power and Light, and we said on the show that that was the state coming and doing this. Florida Power and Light is actually a private power company, one of the largest private power companies in the United States. Oh, they just have the name Florida. They just have Florida in their name. And doing some reading, it looks like it's a government-granted monopoly, basically, over the over the state. But it is, in fact, a private electric company that is running that solar farm out there for that ranch down in Florida. Okay. I just wanted to put that out there for a nice correction. Hey, uh, gas prices are going up. We didn't mention this whole OPEC thing or OPEC plus, which by the way, I checked the government's website earlier and I cannot figure out where to cancel my subscription, the OPEC plus. I don't remember signing up for it. Is it OPECQ plus? I don't know what it is. <laughs> definitely, definitely not that, considering the countries that make yeah. that thing up. Mm. But anyway, you know, they announced they were going to cut the uh, oil supply, the oil production. And the market's reacting to that. By the way, oil's up like 15% over the, the last week or so since people started talking about this. Gas prices going up again. And administrations out there kind of freaking out a little bit. They even talked to, well, the speculation was that they could look to Venezuela potentially uh, for, for helping out with the, uh, with the oil. But anyway, they're a little bit upset about this. Biden was, was uh, trying really hard to get them to not cut their production. And they said, screw you. It's because of you that we have the free the nipple movement happening in Iran right now. <laughs> and, and so we're going to cut the production. Okay. Yeah. And so now free the, the nipple movement. Gas prices are going back up, not to make light of the situation in Iran, but, you know, we joke around. Anyway, the uh, the gas prices are going up, oil prices are going up, and this is not good, by the way, when talking about inflation, because gas prices have a lot to do with inflation. Oil prices have a lot to do with inflation, mm. because oil, not just using gas, it's using, there's a lot of different petroleum products out there. So Literally everything. Prices start going up again, and inflation has barely came down throughout the uh, throughout the year oil prices start going up again we could end up with even worse inflation if they spike up to where they were mm. we'll see we'll see what they mm, end up doing mm, mm. charlie whose fault is they'll this? probably remove that from the core cpi numbers yeah I bet that's what they'll do 
Um, who whose fault would you say this whole this whole thing? It probably greedy oil companies, I bet, right? Well, besides Putin, mm-hmm. it's obvious that you know he's the number one factor. Yep. Uh, besides the you know besides him, it's probably um, the greedy oil company. I wanted to go over some of the just some random numbers for you because when we talk about the oil production and uh, how much we are producing, the rigs that are out there, refineries, stuff like that. Uh, we put a, a lot of focus on like how many, how much should we drill? How many rigs are there that are out there? And that number has declined a lot. The chart that we're looking at right now, it goes back to 1975. It's down a bunch, under 1,000 right now. I think it's around 750 as far as the rig count goes at the moment. But the production, even though it's dropped down, has gone up because uh, we've gotten better, and more efficient at doing things. We don't need as much out there anymore. So I wanted to go through some of this, like when you're talking about, oh, we need the drill. We've got to drill, baby, drill. Yes, we do need to drill as much as we can. We also have to work on the refineries as well. That's a really big problem. Because, but we talked about why nobody wants to invest in those. Well, yeah, and that's the problem here. Like, why would you do that? Right. He's, I've actually got some clips. Speaking of that, why, as someone who runs an oil company, would you put billions of dollars into opening up a new well? You wouldn't. That's the answer right there. Or fixing a, uh, enhancing a refinery or building a new one. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of closures in the uh, refineries. They're not running up at the full capacity, which they would never, I don't think, go to 100% capacity. I don't think that would be uh, possible, but they're running kind of low on the capacity right now. And so that's really one of the big problems. See, we use, uh, we're producing, sorry, uh, somewhere around like 12 million barrels a day is what we're producing at the moment. And that's down a bunch since the pandemic. All right. What about the refinery count? So I went into some of these numbers as well. In 2017, we had total number of operable refineries. We had 141. This comes from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. 141 refineries. In 2022, we have 130. So that's not a big drop, but that's 11 less. The other issue is, as far as the amount that they're operating, uh, that we had 137 operating in 2017 we have 125 operating now so 12 less operating refineries but those refineries have the capacity even now to uh to refine like 18 million or so barrels a day and we're using or we're producing actually about 12 right now and so i think a lot of this has to do with the refining capacity we've talked to someone who is a member of the discord who is an expert in this field, and I, I reached out for comment. <laughs> no, I reached out to have him on the show sometime, but because of the job, you know, you want to go on and talk about stuff like that. We've actually had to remove episodes before when stuff like that has uh, come up. So I'm no expert in any of this, by the way, I'm not pretending to be. I just want to get this out there. It's not just about the rigs. It's also the fact that we've lost a lot of refineries. So that's a big thing. And we are using somewhere around 18 million barrels every day, producing about 12. And we're getting the rest of it, you know, a lot of numbers to work out in there. So basically, why would you invest into oil, Charlie? Do you have any reason that you would want to invest into uh, building new refineries? No. No? No, the return on investment wouldn't be 
there. You want to open up some new wells, get some new rigs out there, man? No. Get a loan. Why don't we go get a loan? <laughs> you know? We just go get a loan and go do that. You don't want to do that, do you? I mean, you know, if you were strategic about it, you could set up a way to make profit, well, profit for yourself. Yeah. You know, pay your, the, really soon, really as quick. As soon as possible. Yeah. But then pay when they shut back. it all down, then you just go bankrupt and you're like, oh, well, I already, you know, extracted about 20 million out of this. So I'm good. Which is like kind of what's happening right now. People need the profit right now because it's going to be gone later on. Right. So here's a part from a presidential debate between Joseph R. Biden and this guy named Donald J. Trump, and they were talking about oil. And we got a couple clips to play here, just to just so you know why they're not trying real hard to up all this. Here's what he says. Would he close down fall? the oil industry? It's false. Would you close it's down the oil industry? I would transition from the oil industry, yes. Oh, I would transition. That is a big statement. That's a because big statement. I would stop. Why would you do that? Because the oil industry pollutes significantly oh, i see here's the deal but that's a big statement that. well if you let me finish the statement because it has to be replaced by renewable energy over time over time and i'd stop giving to the oil industry i'd stop giving them federal subsidies Ooh. he won't give federal subsidies to the to the gas excuse me to the to uh solar and wind yeah why are we giving it to oil industry? We actually do All give right. it to solar and wind. We and that's maybe the biggest question. statement in terms of business. That's the biggest statement. Okay. Because basically what he's saying question, is he is Mr. going President. to destroy the oil industry. Okay. Will you remember that, Texas? Will you okay. remember that, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma? Vice President Biden, let me give you. All right. So there's that one. Man, I'm, don't you just miss Trump a little mm -hmm. bit sometimes? I do. <laughs> Here's another one. Real well, that's quick. a big statement. That's a big statement. That's I love a big statement. He just kept interrupting him, yeah. talking the whole time, throwing him off his game. I like it. Man, you do you notice already just how much more spry Biden was at that time than he is right now? Yeah. Jeez. Being a president really does make you age quickly, really quickly, which is bad when you're like 80 when you become president, yeah. you know. Number one, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. Weird. Pretty clear. So regardless of all the numbers that we just went through, that's the story right there. That's the problem. And while we freak out because OPEC is decreasing their production and oil prices are spiking up and gas is going back up, they're really just upset because it's right before the midterm elections that this is happening. And that could be strategic also that that's happening. While we're freaking out about it, we need to remember that it is our energy policy that is causing this to happen right now. It's, it's not just Putin and Ukraine. It's not even just OPEC. We can blame this on OPEC right now, but why are we so reliant on them? Why does that matter so much? We should be making all the oil we possibly can and people be worried about how much oil we're selling to them. Right. You know, but we're not. And we could. And that was one thing I think Trump did get right, um, you know, in hindsight, which is making sure that we do have um, our oil companies are able to operate. See, that's the key thing, able to operate. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that you have to get a permit from the government to decide if you want to drill on land that you own. That's Isn't pretty that weird. something? I had this other story in here from Forbes, and it's not a massive deal, but we do have that strategic petroleum reserve thing, the SPR, that Biden started pulling a million barrels a day or so out of uh, back in March uh, because the prices were up really high. And, of course, what's, what gets me about that is he realizes clearly in doing that, 
you are saying if you increase the supply in the market, the prices will come down. Isn't that weird? Yeah. But then we do everything that we can to try and hinder the other supply, not just what we have in reserves, but our actual production. And so they know that it's going to spike the prices up. They just don't want it happening before the midterm elections. Really, our election cycles, these every two year things, kind of a help right now because they do try to do whatever they can to get the prices down come election time each every two years. So anyway, I don't know if you want to go through any of the strategic patrol. I like uh, where he talks about how this was a political opinion. I thought that that was pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, this uh, we can highlight this a little bit. It says that uh, typically uh, since 1980, Republicans add to the supply while Democrats take away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's since President Biden took office, we've gone from 640 million barrels in strategic reserve to 450 million barrels. Now, whether or not you think the government should hold on to uh, reserve barrels of oil is another conversation. Um, Clinton, Ob- Clinton and Obama both used the strategic reserve to try and ease high gasoline prices around election time. Huh. While Republican presidents added to the SPR, although President Trump did draw down about uh, 10% of the strategic reserve during his term. So Biden has announced steps to replenish this after 2023. And in this person's opinion, most likely after the 2024 elections. Yeah. And uh, if for some reason we had a true supply emergency and found ourselves needing that oil, it would be looked upon as a terrible decision. So there's still a lot of oil in there, but if there is another really big supply shock and we have to do like what we just did, then you're getting down really low. The, the article headline was that the, the SPR is down to the levels that it was at in 1984. And what if something else happens again? So you need to start trying to get some oil built back up in there. The problem is the prices could go up if you're not producing more oil to put that oil back in there. And that's something that they're just not going to do. They're not going to up the production at all. So that's something that we're all going to pay for. And they're going to try and blame it on everyone else, of course. Mm -hmm. So there were a few things in here also. Today's kind of a random day. Oh, how about this? Oh, crap moment here from the Department of Health and Human Services, Charlie. some good news here, okay? Nothing to worry about. This one is, when I read this, the subject line of the email when I sent it to myself was uh, the F word. Yeah. That's all it was. So this is, yeah, this is um, nothing to to worry about. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to stir a panic here. Uh, I'll save the headline, but this is from HHS, so Health and Human Services. As part of a long-standing, ongoing effort to be better prepared to save lives following radiological and nuclear emergencies, the Department of Health and Human Services is purchasing a, pl- a supply of the drug N-plate, or N-plate, I don't know, N-plate from Amgen, USA. N-plate is approved to treat blood cell injuries that accompany acute radiation syndrome in adult and pediatric patients. ARS, also known as radiation sickness, occurs when a person's entire body is exposed to a high dose of penetrating radiation, reaching internal organs in a matter of seconds. To reduce uh, radiation-induced bleeding, N-plate stimulates the body's production of platelets. The drug can be used to treat adults and children. So the Department of Human Health and Services purchases drug for use in radiological and nuclear emergencies. Eh, Nothing to see here. That Just one, fine. I tell you what, that one's kind of concerning. Everything's fine. 
It's a little bit concerning when they, you know, start making these plans, you know? Everything's fine. Now, God. I guess if we remove the oh shit from this uh, and just talk about economics, I don't think the government needs to be trying to purchase this. I'm pretty sure the company will do whatever they can to provide this at the time of need. But here they are trying to get a stockpile of this medication for nuclear radiation sickness. Mm -hmm. When you add that into all the other stuff that we've been talking about, that's uh, that's not a good sign. Mm. I... I maintain that we could potentially have a serious problem. And it's not just about tweeting with your Ukrainian flag and your profile name or anything like that. We could have a serious problem here. It could get scary. Now, maybe we're just getting it so we can send it to Ukraine. You know, we like sending stuff to Ukraine. Yeah. That could be it. No, of course. I don't know. That's the only reason. I mean, it could actually be a reason. I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure. Okay, well, let's get away from this terrible... Did you see that... Uh... Russia's giant submarine. I did see that disappeared. <laughs> I saw that. I don't know where it's at anymore. So great. I'm pumped. And about it that. carries a weapon they call the apocalypse. Is so, that the uh, tsunami bomb that they have? Yeah. yeah. Creates like 1600 foot waves or 1600 meter waves. That sounds like a lot. I feel like it was meters. I don't know. That sounds like a lot. Either way. It's too high. It's too high. Babcock Ranch is still screwed. Yeah, that was, I told you, you 25 yeah. feet. Don't say. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> so anyway, not uh, to fear monger, but, you know, just things to pay attention to. We joke you know, because when we're terrified, everyone. When you're running around paying attention to things, that's just one thing you would, <laughs> you know, be like, oh, I'm going to put that in there, you know, put that in the brain just to think about for a second. I'm not saying it's the end of the world and you need to go out and get a bunker and, and, and buy food and stuff like that, but... You know, at the same time, you should pay attention. I we will, say this all the time. Just to tell Start you. Start a COVID. What'd we say? Pay attention. Just, Everything. Like, pay attention. Don't ignore the the information that you receive. You have to use it to the best of your benefit. Just to be clear, the serious, the level of seriousness that I give this uh, is that today I, I almost, I'm eyeballing some way out of the money put options on the market that would increase exponentially at the time of a nuclear strike anywhere around the world because the market would sell off uh, handily at that time. And I've, I'm thinking about that being a possibility so much that I'm considering putting some money on it. <laughs> so just so you know where my head's at mm. as far as that goes, I'll let you guys know if I make that purchase. That could be your indicator right there. Okay, Charlie, do you remember... The Nate Cater. Remember a really, really long time ago when we talked about the fact that the Democratic Party was helping to fund extremist Republican candidates and just how weird that was? Mm -hmm. And then we said, well, maybe what they're going to do is they're going to fund these people so they can then talk about how crazy the Republican candidates are. So they can easily beat them in, in an election? I was hoping you would say that you don't remember because I actually made this clip of us talking about it today. Oh, yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> that I wanted no. to play for everyone real fast. This is just a, a couple minutes long. So why are Democrats trying so hard to help them win? Across the country, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Illinois, Democratic groups are bankrolling political ads to bolster fringe Republican candidates. The aim of that support is to elevate extreme GOP candidates over their moderate rivals during primary season with the expectation that they will be easier to beat in a general election. So that is the gamble that they're taking right now. What I will tell you is that actually for Democratic Party establishment people, 
this is a win-win for them. They either put up all these extreme candidates and they win because those candidates are too extreme or those candidates win and the Democratic Party wins because they get to talk about how crazy all these people are and raise more money in the future. Democrats have been airing ads that are an attack on their rivals, but in truth are designed to boost them with Republican voters. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push that same conservative agenda in Congress, a hard line against immigrants at the border and so-called patriotic education in our schools. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. So what you're seeing play out right now is the Democrats need this election to be about Donald Trump. They need it. They need to talk about January 6th. They need to talk about Trump. Because if they don't, then they got to defend what's going on in the country right now. And they don't want to do that at all because it's not good. Okay, so that was a long time ago. That was just back in July. <laughs> and we talked about this several times, actually. A long time ago in July. Long, long time ago. I still remember when we talked about that. Well, I noticed this really just big dump of articles as we lead up to the election about these extremist right-wing republicans that the and how terrible all these nominees are the republican candidates are <laughs> and and so i was like wait a second here is this exactly what we said was going to happen that they were going to be talking about how ex extreme republicans were right before the election after they helped them all win pod god there you go yeah so there's a, a couple little predicting the future. Quick clips. Just a normal, articles. just a normal good morning liberty thing to do. New York Times, behold the Republican trove of truly terrible candidates. And then we got the Washington Post. The majority of GOP nominees, 299 in all, deny the 2020 election results. Charlie, wanna give us a couple paragraphs from that article yeah. right there? A majority of Republican nominees on the ballot this November for the House, Senate, and key statewide offices, 299 in all, have denied or questioned the outcome of the last presidential election, according to the Washington Post analysis. So that's the same thing. If you question something, it's denial. How, now, how crazy is it that this is a thing that is so terrible when, when we know uh, this might be a whataboutism or whatever, but um, I'm pretty sure it's fairly common for people to question the outcome of an election these days. Uh, it happened in 2016 and in 2012. And 2000? <laughs> it happened in 2000, 2004. I mean, a lot of people question the outcomes of elections. Yeah, which means they're deniers. I guess. The implications will be lasting. If Republicans take control of the House, as many political forecasters predict... Election deniers would hold enormous sway over the choice of the nation's next speaker, who in turn could preside over the House in a future contested presidential election. The winners of all the races examined by the Post, those for governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, Senate, and House, will hold some measure of power overseeing American elections. Now, what I like this is the death of democracy. <laughs> That's true. Democracy is dying mm -hmm. right here. Um, what I like right here, too, is they're setting up for future Democratic election denial as well, because now these people could pick the speaker who is then going to preside over the House in future presidential elections. And now that gives you a little bit of 
you know, a little bit of room to say, well, these terrible Republicans in the House, they should have done something and they didn't, or here they changed some rules, and this is why we ended up losing the election. I didn't want to say, by the way, I think it's best for the Republicans to uh, to lose at least the Senate. I don't think it's a good, if you want them to win in 2024, I don't think they need to have full control over the legislature. In fact, my best case scenario would be that it stays exactly like it is right now. And I know a lot of people wouldn't agree with that, but we are getting the a minimal amount of things passed. We are getting some things passed that, that aren't good. All right. But we do have mansion and cinema in there kind of holding back a lot of the craziness, still some craziness the, that's happening. But I think that it would actually be best if everything stayed just like it is right now. That way it's still technically the Democrats who have majorities in Congress and you get that bigger swing in 2024. I don't, I don't know if I like that pill. No, that's, I'm just giving you my take on the whole thing. You take, you take that pill and shove it. And I actually think that's why the Republicans have gone along with doing everything they can to lose this election. <laughs> from what I can tell, <laughs> I think they know it too. Mm. All right, there's another one right here also from the Washington Post. How to confront the rising power of the GOP's election-denying wing. <laughs> it's perfect. This whole thing is playing out perfectly. And you got to hand it to them. They're good. They're, they set this up. Yeah. It's strategic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Election deniers increasingly dominate the Republican Party and could soon gain unprecedented power over the nation's democratic system. That is a takeaway from an alarming investigation by the Post's Amy Gardner. Now, by the way, this is a Post article talking about how great an article from the Washington Post is. Yes. Her analysis found that a majority of the GOP nominees, 299 of them, we already said that, have engaged in some form (laughs) of election denialism. (laughs) All of them have engaged in some form of election denialism. Denialism. <laughs> more than These six people, more oh, than sixty percent of the House candidates are running in districts with partisan profiles, suggesting they are unlikely to lose. Only two states, Rhode Island, Rhode Island, and North Dakota, did not nominate a single election denier in any of the races examined by the Post. While Republicans in Montana, Tennessee, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Nominated election deniers for every major race. Now, whether they election deniers or did they question the election or did they engage in some form of election denialism? Because now we just move to they're all election deniers, mm-hmm. not just engaged in some form yeah. of election denialism. And you haven't heard the worst part here. Mm. The post latest tally captures only part of this threat. It's way worse. Huh? Democracy's dying. I can't right even tell you how bad us. it is. Ooh. I mean, bring on the nukes. Yeah. Because without democracy, you know, with democracy dying, we might as well. It's time for the end. Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, sometimes we all get stuck in this cycle of only focusing on the problems we face instead of finding ways to solve those problems. We deal with a lot of that on this show. Of course, we talk politics every single day. It's a bunch of people upset about problems, and hardly anyone is talking about real solutions. That gets all of us stuck in this negative cycle. It's tough to get out of. I've been able to get out of this cycle in the past because I chose to go to therapy. Just like everyone, I've had tons of problems to work through in the past, and talking to someone really helped me focus on the right things. I got out of the problem cycle and into the problem-solving cycle. 
If you think you could benefit from therapy, I recommend trying BetterHelp. It's convenient, affordable, and accessible entirely online, so you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a quick survey, and you can even switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com GML today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com GML. This is actually the next part is the main topic for the show that I wanted to spend the most time on today, okay. by the way, that we're getting to. Income inequality. All right. Income inequality. This is a Time Magazine piece, and I actually was already going to talk about this today because I've seen a bunch of posts about wealth inequality from Nina Turner and Robert Reich over the last few days. They're going on and on about the wealth in, wealth inequality, the wealth gap, and well, all that. it sells books. It sells. It gets retweets, all that. Rhymes are both verbs. Time said, income inequality in America hasn't risen in a decade, although it might not feel like it. The U.S. may have, may have the highest level of income inequality in the G7 nations, but new research suggests the disparity has actually stabilized over the last decade thanks to rapid growth in wages for the lowest paying jobs. A pair of researchers from Harvard and MIT examined data from the period between 1980 and 2020 and found that income inequality peaked in 2012 and then began to stabilize. Quote, after decades of rising inequality, overall earnings inequality stopped growing and possibly declined since 2012, according to the paper. Except for the CEOs making a thousand times what the average worker does. It's still unfair, man. Mm -hmm. It's still unfair. Tracing income inequality can be especially messy, but the researchers say they pulled together multiple measures from from household and business surveys to BLS data, which they say... All told a similar story, income inequality is declining as growth for low-wage workers outpaces middle and high-wage workers. Now, that's not a line that you would ever hear like Robert Reich say. You know, that's that's not one at all. Mm-hmm. And the income inequality is declining as growth for low-wage workers outpaces middle and high-wage workers. Mm-mm. While the research suggests individual income inequality is shrinking, figures from the Census Bureau present a less optimistic picture. We spent a lot of time on this the other day. They present a less optimistic picture for American households, which are facing current inflation levels. The Census Bureau's 2021 American Community Survey found that household income inequality was significantly higher than its 2019 estimate. Contrary to the two scholars' findings about individual income, the Bureau found that household income inequality increased over the last year. The, the scholars who did the study attribute the difference to changes in their data collection and processing methods. That report is looking at household income inequality rather than inequality in individual earnings. It's a different unit of analysis. Now, that's something we didn't talk about the other day and that Cato didn't have in that piece that we were talking about. They, they were talking about household income inequality. Now, what has to change? What, what's one thing that could change to make household income inequality look worse? Uh, you lose an income. Less people <laughs> yes. in your house. Mm-hmm. So, and that is something that we actually know has happened. So when we use household income data, that does not account for how many people are in your household. It just says you're in this house. And we know that the family's falling apart. We went I from, mean, we've talked about this before, but in the 70s when they were talking about it, the average was like 3.3 and we went down to like the average is 2.2, something like that. So 60 something percent. And, uh, and that can account because have you, as you just have less people in the house, you probably have less income earners in the house also. 
and that looks like because they won't let your kids work yeah you know that looks like it went down (laughs) it's also funny like as you make enough money to not live in the house anymore with someone else like to not share a house as you make enough money and you move out that increases household income inequality Mm -hmm. because now that household income went down and your household is only one person and now that is much lower Instead of when the, the three of you were living together. But those details aren't important, <laughs> Nate. Why would you yeah. bring such questions to the forefront? So we did bring some tweets. Well, you can go from, you know, being uh, dinks, dual income, no kids, mm. right? To uh, then you have kids and that probably reduces some in income inequality there or increases there. But then like you get divorced. And so now, you know, especially if you've, split 50 50 well now that you have you know three let's say three people in two houses now with only one income mm-hmm. and just you're just adding to the stats it's like a, you just say you have a married couple and they both have jobs well you're and say you're both making a hundred thousand dollars a year well your household income is two hundred thousand if you guys get divorced and you each get your own separate house well now there's two households but their household income is only a hundred thousand <laughs> so then the inequality yeah. number goes up Anyway, yeah. Robert Reich, he posted about this uh, yesterday. He said the richest 10% of Americans, that's who he's talking about here. Uh, in 1989, they had 63%, they possess 63% of U.S. wealth. In 2019, they possess 72% of U.S. wealth. The richest 1% of Americans? In 89, they possessed 27% of U.S. wealth. In 2019, they possess 34% of U.S. wealth. The bottom half of the U.S., in 1989, they possessed 4% of U.S. wealth. And in 2019, they possess 2% of U.S. wealth. And then he says 2%. Now that right there is why last week we talked about Nina Turner saying that the wealth of the bottom half has been cut in half. That's what she was talking about, Mm -hmm. was the share of wealth, not how much wealth they had. So she has continued saying dumb stuff, as she would, and we appreciate her for that because it gives us (laughs) stuff to talk about. Nina Turner says, I've been... Actually, why don't you read something, Charlie? Yeah, I need a drink. Okay, take a drink. Nina Turner says, I have been poor. I know that pain and insecurity... I don't think anyone should be poor. I want everyone to be wealthy. Everyone should have safe housing, clean food, air, and water. Everyone should have health care. We can do great things. That's not even housing. It's safe housing. Mm-hmm. Huh. Everyone should have a safe house. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And clean. A clean house. <laughs> now this comment on here. here. Here's a comment from Corey Ford. Personally, I don't want anyone to be wealthy. Because that implies a a significant wealth gap between the top and the bottom. I want to raise the bottom and lower the cap. We have the resources to make sure everyone has a good base quality of life if we stop the wealth hoarding. Wealth hoarding. Mm -hmm. That's one we haven't talked about in a while. Yeah. That's a ridiculous idea. Um, Really no such thing. Uh, People put their money into things like investments, which is something that we need right now, or even in a bank. It's, but, a, it's the same thing Margaret Thatcher said a long time ago. You'd rather the is, poor be poor as long as the rich were less rich. It's the exact idea. That's all it's about. 
It's and, and it's not like raising the bottom. You know, you're just, it's all about lowering the cap. Yeah. That's what they that's what they're really after. I want no cap, but these people all cap. Yeah. That's it. Mhm. And so they don't want anyone to be wealthy. I like how Nina Turner said, I want everyone to be wealthy, which really just means that no one is wealthy really at that time. You know, if you think about the, basically that would just mean that everyone's the same and no one would have, no one would be any better off than, let's talk about the numbers actually, just to, just to describe this a little bit better. Oh, by the way, Nina Turner also said, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Shouldn't be defeating it should be a rallying cry for change. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. That should be a rallying cry for change. You know what the problem with that rallying cry is? It's not true. The poor are getting richer. The poor are getting richer. Yes. The rich are getting richer, and the poor are getting richer. The poor are not getting poor. The only way you can talk about the poor getting poor is if you look at it in relation to your share of this pie this fixed pie that they think exists, but the total amount of money. If that's all you care about is the share of the total amount of money, then okay, you got poorer. But what if your wealth doubled, but you have a lower percentage of the total amount of money that there is out there, you're really going to say that you got poorer? No. How? How are you going to say that? It's like if you, like, let's say you had a pot. Mm-hmm. That had $100 in it. Yeah. Okay. And then you got $10. You were poor. I got not. I got ten percent okay. of this thing. Yeah, yeah, but that's still poor because the other. I've got ninety percent. Yeah, yeah. So now you add another hundred dollars to the pot. The wealth grows of the nation. Okay, and so like now you get twenty dollars. So you have. 30. That's if I stay the same. You have thirty. Now hold on. Now what you if get that, twenty from that second pot? What if that pot? The hundred dollar pot grows to five hundred dollars, and instead of getting ten percent like I used to, I now get five percent. I just lost half of my wealth, right? But you got richer, right? No, no, I just lost half my wealth. <laughs> I was, I did have ten percent, and now I've only got five. I just lost half my wealth. Mm-hmm. No, my wealth just went up from ten to twenty five. At that point, I bet you thought I didn't bring the numbers, but mm. I did. Don't worry, I already brought some numbers with me. Here's the share of the total net worth held by the top 1%. This comes from the St. Louis Fred. Now, that is, like Robert Reich was saying, it's just a little bit over 30%. It used to be down just a little bit under 25%. This is from 1990, so that has grown. Their share of the pie has grown. That is true. Here is the share of the total net worth held by the bottom 50%. Now, in 1990, it's true. It was up around 4%. He said 1989. This is up around four. And then he was quoting 2019. Yesterday, he was quoting 2019. (laughs) Just in case you were wondering, yesterday, Robert Reich was quoting a stat from 2019. Not this stat from two weeks ago from the St. Louis Fred, but a stat from 2019 as if we don't have the numbers. But the numbers do exist. Uh, Right now, it's a little bit over 3%. Now, that makes it more difficult because you can't say that it got cut in half. Right. That's way easier if you can say it got cut in half. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it went from 4% down to 3%. So the share of the pot has indeed gone down for the bottom 50%. But remember that pot? Oh, God, look at that after the financial crisis. Not good. <sighs> yeah, not good at all. Um, remember that pot that Charlie and I were talking about, or the pie, the fixed pie that we were talking about? 
Here's the pie. It turns out it's not fixed. Turns out it's not fixed. From 1990, there was around $20 trillion in wealth around that time. These That $20 million is in millions. So around $20 trillion in wealth around 1990. Uh, right now, currently sits at $130 trillion Kill. in wealth since that time. So yes, the share went from 4% down to 3% for the bottom half. But it is now, instead of 4% of $20 trillion, it is 3% of $130 trillion. Which one would you rather have? Which one would you rather have? That's the better question. Would you rather have perfection and get, hey, let's just be equal here, bottom 50%? Why don't we just do 10, 15%, 15%? Give them 50%. 50%, I guess, right there. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do 50%. You got $10 trillion in wealth. That's pretty good, Mm -hmm. right? Now, here's the thing. Here's the total net worth held by the top 1%. Okay, this is, we were talking about the share earlier. Now we're talking about the actual total net worth that has gone up a bunch from around five, uh, right? Yeah. About yeah, five, five trillion. trillion. Up to about 45 trillion, something like that. Here's your total net worth held by the bottom 50%. Now, here's the time frame that they're talking about. It's a little bit under a trillion and the time frame they're talking about. And now... It's up to around $4.5 trillion. But their wealth has been cut in half. Yeah. Cut in half, Charlie. <laughs> From, look at half. I don't, I don't even need to get a calculator, but the last I checked, $4.5 trillion is exactly one half of... One trillion. <laughs> of one trillion. <laughs> yeah. Less than one trillion, right? <laughs> I mean, I didn't graduate from college, but that's exactly one half. That's the wealth getting cut in half, yeah. man. Yeah, same thing. It's not about your total wealth going up. It's about feeling like it's unfair. That's it. It's mm. about envy, yeah. and it's about feeling like you're getting screwed. It's not about the quality of your life going up. Nothing like that. Not the fact that you have two cars, probably. You have a phone. You got a job. Mm-mm. Like all of these things. You have access to health care. Uh, antibiotics, medicine, life-saving drugs. You got free vaccines. <laughs> Completely yeah. free. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. about that. Your children live. Someone else still has more than you do. And yes, the rich get richer. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To those who have everything more will be given. And the rich get richer. But so are the poor. And I love what Jordan Peterson says about this. And he's like, and that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he talks about like, you know, Capitalism being a bad system. Now, I don't really necessarily think capitalism is a bad system. Um, but even if you say capitalism is a bad system, right? Like you you are charging me money for thing a higher value than what it's probably worth, but I'm going to buy it because, you know, it's worth more to me than this money that I'm going to give you. And we both say thank you to each other. So it's not a, yeah, I don't really think it's a bad system. That sounds, Sounds even pretty, if you, you think don't want it, none of this, Charlie. Even if you think it's a bad system, what he says in the debate with um, a debate about Marx is that it's the only system that produces wealth. And what happens when wealth is produced? Well, not only do the rich get richer, but so do the poor and middle class. They, get, the, they get richer. This is from the Fred. This is from the Federal Reserve's data. Anytime you see someone saying the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, 
No, that is a lie. Maybe they're not lying. Maybe they don't know, and they're just repeating something that they heard Robert Reich III say. Maybe that's it. So don't call them a liar. Let them know that they are wrong, that they are mistaken. Out of, and, and they didn't even mean to be mistaken, but they are. And there's plenty of data to prove that. The poor are getting much richer as well. It's you just, can say something like, hey, I find this interesting. Can you help me understand? Because looking at this graph, it looks like the poor got richer. Yeah. Am I miss? Am I misinterpreting this graph? And I and I understand. Like I agree with you. You know, there's uh, this system seems unfair. Like, could you could you just tell me like what you mean by this? Because here's the total net worth, the bottom fifty percent, and I see it's gone up like five times over this time frame that you're talking about. And so, just kind of help me understand what it is that you're talking about. Looks like the wealth went up five hundred percent. Yeah, it's so pretty what's good. What's happening? Okay, let's go home. And then, you know, the 2008 crash, if you look at that, I mean... That's not good. It's not good. But if you look at that, like, whose fault was that? You know? That's the person who posted this data. Yeah. <laughs> the Federal Reserve. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You do the math on that. So, when it does come to boom and bust cycles, it is way worse on the poor than mm -hmm. it is the rich. You know, because, well, look at inflation. Like, rich people can handle inflation, you know? Um, I mean, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but it's talking to my wife the other day. I'm like, yeah, inflation's bad. I was like, we're really not going to see it as yeah. much, you know, as like some people are, you know, like when you go, it sucks when you go to the grocery store, I was telling you, and I spent $80 last night on like three pieces of meat and, uh, some Coke zero. I was like, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> but that's not going to break the bank as it does for some people. So, um, the, the rich can withstand the thing, which is why we talk about the pursuit of meaning, right? We talk about doing something you love, being the best at it, taking responsibility. And even if the market's against you, do you try to make as much money as you humanly possibly can and support your family? And uh, that's a what woman. you need to be doing. A woman. All right, y'all. If you enjoyed today's episode, as Nate said, please subscribe, share the show with your family, just your family this time. Share it with them. <laughs> no Let them else. know. And uh, then also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Go to joingmail.com, watch us live, pay us six bucks a month, support us, please. Please help support the show. And uh, godhatesfeds.com for some merch. And then uh, if you want to learn about the market crash, the market downturn, or the market upturn, either way, you got to go to natescrashcourse.com. So no more promo code. You missed out on that, but you can still access natescrashcourse.com. So go check that out. If you do all those things, we'll be back again tomorrow for some dumb bleep of the week. Until then, I hope you have a good day and a good morning, Liberty. <laughs>